Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Hey, good morning, church. I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's not me. We on there? We're coming up? There it is. All right. Hey, I'm so glad that you're hanging out with us today. Um, Welcome to rest, if I didn't already say that. My family and I, we went to uh, Pizza Inn the other, this past week on Thursday night. Okay, I didn't realize we love Pizza Inn so much, but okay. Um, we went to Pizza Inn, and uh, I didn't realize this. It was after Jackson's or baseball game, but kids eat three for, on, on Thursdays. And, um, and so that was a really big win for our, for our Thursday night uh, with our two boys and everything. And uh, I, was just, I, was, I was thinking a lot about that, and I was... Uh, going, you know, Pizza Inn and um, Waffle House, Pastor Cody. Those are the kind of places Jesus would eat. Um, Cody hates Waffle House, if you didn't know that. But um, have you ever experienced this before, though? We'll just call it the drive-through or, or dine-in difference. Whenever, whenever you, you're out to eat at a restaurant or maybe you went through a drive-through and you get up to the cashier and it's time for you to pay, and then you come to find out, actually, that someone else has paid or that you don't have to pay uh, the tab has already been covered, so to speak. Has this happened to anybody before, drive through or dine-in? Yeah. And it's this weird sort of feeling, you know, um, that, that's hard to describe. And, and, and so, like, on, on one hand, you're humbled, and, and you're also a little bit confused all at the same moment because what you expected uh, to pay for has already been paid for. And, and you know, as I drove away uh, Thursday night from Pizza Inn, that gesture really started to, to sink in with me. And I couldn't help but, but think and be reminded about the kindness of that business. And it wasn't so much about getting a free uh, kid's meal, but it was this realization that there are still kind and generous people in a world that feels oftentimes unkind and is kind of unfeeling. And it was this, this small act of kindness that really made this drive-through dining kind of difference for me. You know, just like the generous person who's maybe paid for your meal before someone else has already picked up another tab for you uh, in a much larger way that we're going to talk about this morning. And in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, the Apostle Paul he reminds us of this incredible gift of kindness that we've been given in Christ. And what he does is he calls us to respond in repentance and in gratitude. And so if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Uh, we'll read verses 4 and 5 together. This is week 13 of Romans. This is contempt for God's kindness that stockpiles God's wrath. Romans 2, uh, starting in verse 4 and reading verse 5. Do you love Jesus, rest church? Are you ready to study his word this morning? Amen. This is what it says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but... Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now what we'll do here in a minute after we pray is we'll play a little bit of catch up as a refresher to get back on the same page of where we're at in Romans, but I want to give you a map first on where we're headed. It's three sections really that we're going to look at, and it, and it looks like this. Number one, 
we're gonna talk about who they are, the Jewish moralizers that have these really hardened hearts. And then Paul's gonna walk us through number two, who God is, that he's patient and he's forbearing and he's abundantly kind. And then lastly, it will inevitably lead to some results when these two parties clash. And the central idea that we're focusing on this morning is that your sin, your debt, it demands a payment. And so when it comes to this payment of debt that you owe, you either repent and let grace pick up the bill or you stay unrepentant and you must suffer the cost. So what I'm saying is that either Christ picks up the balance or you do, but somebody's got to pay the tab. Somebody's got to pay the tab. And so we'll pray and then walk through this together. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would uh, teach us through you, God, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we, as we work through this text together, that we would, we would sit under what it has to say and, and not just consider it for someone else or someone in our lives that it reminds it, uh, uh, of us, of God, but help us to sit under it, to see ourselves in what you say. And we pray like, like David did in, in Psalm 139. We just say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in us and lead us to the way everlasting. And so Jesus, we just ask this morning that you would give us the grace to, to really hate our sin and to really run to you. And it's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. So somebody's got to pay the tab. Somebody's got to pay the tab. As a really quick uh, refresher or appetizer for us before we get into the text, I want to bring you back up to speed on where we kind of went through. We're still in this bucket number two of Romans that extends from chapter one, verse 18, all the way up to chapter three, uh, verse 20. And the focus here uh, through this whole text is about the wrath of God. And Paul lays out two groups of people, the saints and the ants, and this group of ants has been subdivided into three uh, more categories, or there's four up there that you can see, uh, the pagans, the moralists, and the religionists. And then Paul's going to come back and get everybody on the list. So it's the pagans, the moralists, and the religionists. And, and from these four categories, the first uh, two opening chapters of Romans, what we learn is that it's e really easy for us to get lost either in unrighteousness or self-righteousness. It's easy for you and I to get lost in our unrighteousness or self-righteousness, which both are counterfeits to God's righteousness. And both are the two great enemies of the gospel, sin and religion. Sin and Religion. See, sinners, what they want the Bible to do is they want the Bible to say less than it does. And religious people want the Bible to say more than it does. And so what happens from our list is that we see these unrighteous pagan Gentiles. They want to make the Bible thinner by removing the parts that condemn them. And the, the religious guys, the religious sinners, the self-righteous, they, they want to make the Bible thicker by stacking on a bunch of extra rules and regulations that are really just about their pet peeves to condemn other people. And church, the antidote for this is the three Bs. We need better Bible browsing. That's what it comes down to. We need to, to know the word more. And so what, what, what this is, is it's a little bit like a bow and arrow. You and I, we need to pull back for just a moment so we can go forward in our text today. And so Caleb, if you will, go ahead and pull that list of, of four groups back up for me for just a second. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So four weeks back in, in week 11, Pastor Johan, um, he, he dropped on us how Paul laid out this Sky Mall uh, catalogs list of 21 vices that were broken down into six sections. And the picture overall that Paul was painting is that, that our world, that it has been broken by sin. And me and you, we know that, that our legislation can't fix this. We know that education can't fix this. And since our morality is completely interwoven into the character of God, whenever we try to pull God out of this scenario, he will, in his wrath, respond to sin and rebellion. And so sometimes what happens is that God will hand us over to our own over-desires. 
It was the, this was what the Gentile pagans problem was. Then uh, a few weeks back, three weeks back, Pastor Cody in week 12 with Romans 2, 1 through 3, he introduced to us the second group that's up there, the Jewish uh, moralists, primarily Jews, some Gentiles in that group. But Paul was rebuking this group because of their culture of criticism and judgment. And so Paul was, he was really addressing, if you look back in your text, the hypocrisy of this, this double standard that these moralists were setting, where they were setting this really high bar for everyone else, but they were setting this, the bar comfortably low for themselves. And, and, and as they were listening to Paul drop bars in Romans 118 through 32 about how the pagan, pagan Gentiles had messed everything up, the moralists were in the background, amening Paul. Yeah, Paul, you're right. And that's you, that's them, not us religious guys, though. And that's exactly how religious people would read Romans 1, 18 through 32. And so Paul was pointing out there in chapter 2, verse 1, that'll be on the screen, to his own people, he said, you too are guilty. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. And so it's this thread of Romans 2, uh, with the Jewish moralists, it's going to carry us into our, our text today in the predicament that these moralists are in. And so here's number one, who they are. This is who they are. This group, they falsely believed that they were exempt from the judgment of God because of their special covenant relationship with God. And so this, in their minds, allowed them to be both uh, judgmental toward the sinful Gentiles, and it also allowed them to be complacent about their own junk. And so what Paul does, as he opens up for us in verse 4, what he's saying to his Jewish comrades is he's going, hey, look, the law, it's not enough. House rules don't matter here because God's mercy is not found in giving the law, but it's found in allowing people to repent from their sin because doing what God requires is desired. And these critical moralizers, what they've done here, church, is that they have seriously miscalculated that God's never going to judge their sin even though he might be judging the sin of everybody else. And so in verse four, Paul says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This statement that we see here at the very beginning, or this is like one of those therefores. It's a connecting statement pointing us back to verse three. And so in verse three, Paul was saying, hey, look, you Palestinian Jews, you are judging people for, for their sin and doing these things of chapter 118 through 32. But why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment whenever you're doing the same sort of stuff, but just expressing it in different ways? And so Paul's saying, and he will continue to say that every one of us, that we are all in need of God's grace. We are all under sin and that we all sin. We just express our sin in different ways. And that's how he's calling out the moralists here. The pagans, they were clearly unrighteous, but the, the moralists were self-righteous, which is still unrighteous. And so there's this false perception that Paul's got to address here. And you look at the text, he says, or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God? Their assumption or their presumption here is, is even dangerous because what they're doing is in their assumption, they're discounting God's kindness and mercy. And Paul's really going, hey, do you think lightly of God's mercies. Do you think lightly of the mercies that God has given to you? Because they have this, this real false sense of security here. Like, like the, hey, Paul's going, do you think that God has been kind to you, that he's pleased with you, that you're at peace with God? Because in fact, in fact, it's God's patience in your sin that's giving you an opportunity to come into peace with him because you group of ain'ts you ain't at peace with him and so and they're like Paul but Paul we got the law 
in the law, what it, what it's done for this group of moralists, even in the religious, is that the law has primarily become binoculars for them to spot everybody else's sin, but they've forgotten that it's supposed to be a mirror for them to see their own sin first. See, church, see if this scenario sounds, sounds familiar to you that's brought to our day. Let's say that there's a religious or a moral person that you know of, and that, you know, they, they know at least a few Bible verses. They know some verses about God's love, maybe, or God's mercy, or God's kindness. They know just enough verses uh, to be kind of dangerous. And what it's done from those verses that they know is that it's created uh, a false sense of, of security, that they have just enough m- information to create this false sense of security because they are completely unaware of their need for God's grace. Does this this sound familiar to you? It's like, yeah, (laughs) welcome to church in the South, right? If you don't uh, root for Bama, then you're gonna Auburn, right? Like that, it's this this false, did you like that one? That was okay, that was okay. It's this false sense of security that we bring to the table of like, Jesus loves everybody and so he's just gonna look the other way toward our, our sin. And, and, and to the, this point, the moralists, what they're doing is that they're taking these really good truths about God and they're twisting them to bad ends. Like the, like the uh, doctrine of once saved, always saved. Have you heard of that before? Who started that? We, we believe in this at Rest Church. Eternal security is a really, really good thing. But do not be misled because today many, many cultural Christians believe that church is a good thing. And we believe that Jesus is a good thing, but he's not really a good enough thing for me to give my life over to. And so they're not really serving in any ministry. They're not really giving cheerfully and sacrificially. They, they couldn't tell you the last time that they've shared the gospel or told someone else about Jesus and, and they'll come to church, you know, every couple of months because, well, they're, they're just too busy, right? Their, their extended family has a beach house that they like to go to, or they've got uh, travel ball tournaments, or their dog has Pilates, or like whatever it is, they just, they just skip out. And for many of these people, church is a really good thing. Jesus is a really good thing, but he's not a God thing. He's just another thing to add onto their list of things. So naturally, they're not interested in loving him or loving what he loves to make it a priority. And I am so, I am so fearful for this person. Because if you were to ask them, hey, hey, do you know Jesus? They would respond with a resounding, yes, yes, I know Jesus and they'll tell you about a time where they prayed a prayer or where they, they walked an aisle or they had some sort of emotional uh, feeling at church one day, but they just don't live their lives as if Jesus is their Lord. And I say that not, not to smash your conscience, if, if that's you this morning, but only because I'm concerned that you're relying on the same sort of false presumptions that these critical moralizers were, 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 were that Paul was addressing in this text. And I can't help but think about that person and be pointed back to Romans 11 because I think that these are exactly the same sorts of people where God removed them from Israel. Listen to this. Romans 11 says this, but if some of the branches were broken off the Jews and you, although a wild olive shoot, the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Christ, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Listen to this. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand fast through faith, do not become proud, but fear. Listen, for if God did not spare the natural branches, what makes you think he would spare you? And church, if God was willing to cut off the branches of this original tree down to a stump because of their unbelief, the Jewish people, why in the world would you and I, those who have been grafted in somewhat unnaturally into this Jewish tree, why would we ever think that we can get away with the very things that got them chopped down in the first place? Because it's the exact same transgressions that got them removed from the tree. It was compromised. They were taking salvation for granted. They were giving lip service to God. They were making excuses. They were going through religious rituals and motions and their hearts didn't really belong to God or the body. Does this sound familiar? 
right. <laughs> From the mouth of babes, right? Was that, was that a sneeze or a babe? I don't know. Either one works. Um, and look, I'll, I'll just say this, okay? I don't, I don't care where you go to church. I don't. I really don't. Go to Heartland. Go to Lone Oak First Baptist. Go to Faith Center. Go to Woodlawn. Just go somewhere. Go somewhere. Love Christ the vine. Get connected as a branch to the other branches. Because it is once saved, always saved, but it's also once saved, forever following. That's what the lordship of Jesus is about. And so, church, what they have here is they have, they have the correct information about God, but there's no transformation that's going along with that. And this is a real, real problem. And so for us, I just want to ask you, how many, how many Bible verses have you memorized? How many sermons or podcasts have you listened to? How much Christian literature is stacked on the shelf, the bookshelf at, at your home? How many Bible studies have you been part of? The trap of religion is that it's simply about attaining more information from God's word. But the reality is the more that you know, the more that you are going to be responsible and accountable to God for, the more that he will judge you for your failure to love him and love what he loves. And so are you likened to these, these Jewish moralists today where, where, where you're taking the mercies of God really lightly in response to their false presumption Paul works to remind them of exactly who God is. So here's part two. Here's who God is. It's three characteristics he lays out for us. Verse four again. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And Paul here, he's asking them, he's saying, do, do you really understand? Do you really understand who God is? And, and I think this is an important concept for you and I to not just, not just step over this morning, because before you and I, before we read our Bibles and open them up to go, okay, what can I, what can I practically take away from this to apply to my life? Before we, before we do that, you and I need to open up our scriptures and go, what is this, what is this reveal to me first about who God is? Because who God is always shapes who we are. And so that portion should always come first. And this is what Paul says. He says, hey, this is, this is who God is. Look at the text. He says that God is kind, he's tolerant or forbearing, and he's patient. Your God is kind, he is forbearing, and he is patient. All three aspects of God, all three are aspects of God's patience that, that he shows toward his people that I'll show you in just a second. But let me just ask you really quick on this. How many of you here are glad that God has been patient and kind with you. Mm. Because it's like, man, it's like, hey, yeah, praise God for his kindness, bro. Praise God for his patience with me because if I were God, I would have given up on me a long time ago. Like I said, I would have tossed in the towel a lot of rounds earlier. And so let's sit in this for just a minute, not for, not for information, to put, but to ask the Holy Spirit for transformation. How many times has God heard the prayer that you prayed and answered it even when you were being faithless? How many times has God handed over to you grace when you actually deserved wrath? How many times has God shown you something to do and yet you still refused it, but he, he maintained his patience with you anyway? What, what Paul says to us about God, church, this is, this is some good news because Jesus wasn't sent here just to, to twist our arm into a submission to his will. No, no, but he, was, he came to call us to himself in his kindness. What a, what a good God. Thank you, Jesus. And so this, these words, kindness and tolerance and patience, it all sits under this umbrella, so to speak, of God's, God's goodness. But Paul is using each one here really distinctly, and I want to show it to you. In the very first phrase that Paul uses, he first he mentions, he says, kindness. The riches of his kindness. And, and what this is, is this is a, a consideration Paul is using that can be applied to our past sins. 
This kindness aspect is in regard to our past sins. This, this is a word that's actually interchangeable uh, with goodness, and it's written in such a way as God has been good to you because he has not judged you even though your past says that you deserve judgment. He is a good and he is a kind heavenly father. And I, and I won't go into this too much, but just to, to prod a little bit, you earthly fathers who, who are here this morning, does your family do? They see you as kind in light of your heavenly father who is kind. Or are you harsh with your kids? Are you, are you harsh with your spouse? Do you, do you provoke them? Do you, do you prod them? Do you prompt them into, into anger? Do you demean them? Do you neglect them? Do you harm them in any way? Do you hold the wrongs that they do back over their heads? When your family and others consider your head and your heart and your hands, do they associate you with kindness? Because kindness, it's really this, it's this underrated uh, kingdom attribute, but, but, but I think that, that when we open ourselves up and, and ask God the Holy Spirit to change our, our hearts, that it opens us up to the, his supernatural work where it can ha- give us kind hearts that lead into, into kind lips. And I don't intend this to be profound, but I'll just use a picture from my life to help illustrate it. Whenever I'm talking to Jackson about how to treat other people, it'll usually show up in the form of Something like this. I'll go, hey, buddy, because, because God has been like this to you, you should be like this to other people. And so I'll go, hey, because God has been generous with you, you should be generous with other people. Because God has loved you, you should love other people. Because God has been kind to you in your mistakes, you should be kind to others and in, in theirs. And what this is leaning into, it's leaning into what God has already done. But what it's doing is it's, it's platforming the person that I am currently to be shaped into his image. It's a looking back, but in a, in a present situation. It's kindness with the purpose, church. Next in the list, Paul says that the moralists, they're forgetting God's forbearance or long-suffering or tolerance in regard to their sin. And this word that's used here is forbearance. This is, a, this is an enduring sort of kindness. God's forbearance is in regard to our future sin here. Think about this. Jesus, he knows. He knows you're gonna sin tomorrow. And Jesus knows you're gonna sin the day after tomorrow and the next day. And, and he holds back still his judgment against you And even in this very day, in this very moment, in this very hour and minute, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, yet he holds back his judgment against us. This is a godly tolerance that's given in to mercy. It's given in to us for mercy, rather. Now, when we we think about the word toleration, uh, godly toleration is significantly different than worldly toleration is. Godly toleration, it's not about everybody being right and good uh, without any distinction between what's good and what's evil. And so God doesn't ever condemn sin and, and let's all just get along and do the electric slide into hell together. That, that's not what, what godly tolerance is, is about. Godly tolerance is when God says, look, look, no, no, I know what's right and I know what's wrong and I know that you do wrong and will continue to do wrong, but I will forbear this in my grace because what I'm doing is I'm leaving open a door of repentance for you. And the Bible teaches us that God's not tolerant of sin, but he is, on the other hand, patient with sinners. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is forbearing with a purpose. And you need to recognize this about God. This is what we're talking about in this section, who God is. God, he has has a really long candle wick, a really long candle wick. And so it does a lot, it takes a lot to stir him to, to, to wrath, and, and he hasn't held back 
lighting the match of eternal fire because he finds some of your sins more tolerable than others, but rather he is forbearing, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in steadfast love to give uh, sinners every opportunity to repent before this burn down begins. And, And I love what Spurgeon has to say on this. Listen to this. He says, it seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still impenitent, and finds himself out of hell. The sunlight seems to testify, I shine on thee yet another day, as in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest so that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to the table, I have to support your body that you still may have space for repentance. Every time you open the Bible, the pages say, we speak to you that you may repent. Every time you hear a sermon, if it be such a sermon as God would have us preach, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and to live. Church, does your life, does it reflect a really long wick like God's or is it, is it, is it short? Does it, does it take a whole lot to stir you to wrath or, or, or does it not take much? It's, it kind of sets off at, at a spark. God is kind. He is, he is tolerantly forbearing. And last one, this is a punch in the teeth for me. Tell your neighbor, ouch. God is patient. God is patient. This is God's patient in our present sin. He is patient with us. How many of you would confess that you're a little impatient like me? Yeah, so sometimes I'll stand in my microwave and I'll watch the countdown timer and I'll tap my toe a little bit faster and urge it to hurry up, all right? We all got a little bit of impatience in us sometimes. And, you know, the other day I was driving and it was, uh, it was one of those days, and it was like, it was national, if you can't drive your car, day, day. And so everybody was driving on the road real slow, and, and uh, so I was commenting about the cars that were going back and forth along on the road. And I wasn't using profanity, just because that's not what's in my heart, but I was commenting. And um, I was going, come on, man, can you go any faster? Why are you going so slow? Are you kidding me? And what I did in that moment is I heard these little echoes come out of my back seat of uh, my four-year-old Jordy saying the same kind of things. And he really got into it at one point. He pointed out his window. He said, you go home, car. <laughs> Disciples, man. And, um, and I was thinking about that. I just share that with you to say that, you know, children, they'll often uh, do much more as you do than, than say as you do or do as you say. They'll do as you do a lot more than say as you do or do as you say. And, um, and so they're going to reflect your patience to a large degree. And, um, you know, last night, uh, Jordy, he also peed in a cardboard box in his closet. <laughs> yeah. And um, we, didn't, we didn't teach him that, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it has something to do with this patience part of the sermon. But, man, you don't have to keep, teach kids depravity, that's all I'm saying. Um, but just, just think about the scriptures with me on this. Okay, God's patience. Like how many times in the New Testament could have, could have Jesus rebuked his disciples if he'd have rebuked them every time that they deserved it? Because if that's the case, church, the gospels would read entirely differently than they, than, than they currently do. If he didn't have any patience with them, he'd have been like, Peter, stop it. John, slow down. James, you're wrong. Again, Matthew, are you kidding me? Come on, Matthew. It would have read much like that if God didn't have patience with them. And so you and I, from God's pattern of patience, perhaps you and I need to be patient also with God Because maybe God is working on that person who's driving that car and he's not done with them yet. And so we need to be patient in his process, patient with God and patient with God's people because God has been patient with us. And this is patience with a purpose. And so it's no surprise, church, that Paul, he describes these three aspects of of God's mercies, kind, tolerant, patience in the text as he says that they're riches. Look at that. They're riches because these are truly unseen, unseen treasures of grace that God has given to us. And so what Paul's done is he's asked uh, and answered some questions. First, he went off and he said, okay, are you thinking lightly about God's mercies? And then secondly, he said, okay, do you really understand who God is then? And now lastly here in a third question, he, he goes, 
Do you want to know why, though? Do you want to know why it is that God is so patient with you? And here's the purpose, church, of God's kindness. Look at the text. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The big shebang, the whole picture of God's patience toward us in our sin is that it's intended to lead you into repentance. And I just wonder, you know, sometimes it's like, what could, what could cause someone to come clean before they get caught? God's kindness does that. And so, look, if you're, if you're here and you're waiting for God to, to drive you into repentance, that's, that's not how he operates. No, no, he, he draws us into, into repentance. And, and Spurgeon into this says, listen to this, he says, notice, dear friends, the Lord doesn't drive you to repentance. Cain was driven away as a fugitive and a vagabond, and he killed his, uh, his righteous brother Abel. Judas went and hanged himself, being driven by anguish and remorse because of what he had done in betraying his Lord. But the sweetest and best repentance is that which comes not by driving, but by drawing. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God will not drive you, but he intends to draw you back through his kindness. Don't you just love that? Man, what a good God. And so Paul, he's sitting down, he's reflecting on this repentance thing and to the moralists. And, and, and what he's saying is like this, this repentance, it's, it's not a one-time act. It's not like a measles shot where you get it once and then you don't ever need it again. No, no. Paul's saying this is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment that when you sin, you are coming in repentance back to the Lord Jesus. And, and, and actually repentance in the Greek here, it's a verb, it's metanoia. And what metanoia is, is it an expression of, of, of remorse or regret over the bankruptcy our personal philosophies have created about how the world should be run. And so, you know, sometimes people ask me, how do, how do, I, know, how do I know if I'm a follower of Jesus or not? I think that's a really, a really you know, good question that, that, that we should ask ourselves. And, and if that is you... Um, I'm glad that you asked because a great indicator on this is that you now feel differently and you also do differently than you used to because there has been this progressive shift, this holy shift in your appetites. But here's the catch 22 for the moralist. Before you and I preach repentance, we must first practice it. Before we preach repentance, we first must practice repentance. Uh, G.K. Chestnut, Chesterton, in a, in a, in a letter um, to a British newspaper that was asking him, they asked him and said, hey man, what's wrong with the world? And this was his response back to him. Dear sir, I am. My grandpa Ray, he used to say when he was uh, living here, now he's with Jesus today, but he used to say, hey, never, never preach better than, than you live. Never preach better than you live. Or let's, let's consider theologian Abraham Heisel's description of repentance. He says it's this, a change in man's conduct that brings about a change in God's judgment. See, repentance, what it doesn't do is it doesn't hide, it doesn't conceal, it, it, all, it lays its brokenness out on the table, it exposes everything, and it always leads to change. It always leads to change. And so, wrapping this up, what comes next for us is maybe one of the, if not the most scariest verses in the entire scripture. And this is the results of what happens whenever we have contempt for God's kindness. This is the result. Listen to this verse five. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Look at that text again. <laughs> we usually like butts in the Bible. You know, those are usually a really, really good thing. But here it's like not so much. Because Paul reveals to us that the source of all of this, this unrepentance, this impenitent, it's, it, it's a hard and impenitent heart. That's what he says. He says it's a hard and impenitent heart. This is a heart that is unwilling, that is unable to repent, a heart that is hostile to God. This is a heart that refuses to yield. Instead, it's a heart that digs in, it bears down, it doesn't let go, it doesn't relent, it's like a tick. 
And what this does, church, when you have a heart and impenitent heart, inevitably it will always create a heart that ends up being numb. Right, like when, whenever you have callus on your skin, you, you lose the sensation, right, in that area of your body. And the same exact thing can happen to your heart where you lose the, the feeling in this hard and impenitent heart. This is the heart of Pharaoh from Exodus, that despite God uh, sending his 10 plagues of compassion to Pharaoh's doorstep, Pharaoh continually, cyclically refused God. God could have just smashed Pharaoh in one fell swipe, but he didn't do that. He sends 10 plagues of compassion and people to ask him to repent. He says, no. The the Puritans had this saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And it's the exact same with the gospel. The gospel will will melt some's hearts into repentance while others, it will cause it to harden their hearts in impenitence. And so church, let me ask, is your heart this morning numb? Do you have walls that have been built up? Is your heart, is it more more like Pharaoh's and Judas or is it more like Jesus? Because if it's more like Judas and Pharaoh, here's what your impenitent heart is doing. Look at the text. Because of this, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's righteous judgment here, Paul's saying to the the, the moralizers, his judgment on our unrighteousness, on our self-righteousness, it will result in God's wrath on the unrepentant. Paul's saying, look, if you, if you continue to walk down this path of unrepentance, living in unrepentance, living as if you have no need to repent, then what you are doing is you are, you are stockpiling God's wrath that's set aside for you on the day of judgment. Paul makes this really clear in the text that this isn't a question of if, but when. Look, he says, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So do you get this? At the first coming of Jesus, when Jesus first came here for us, it, it was revealing the loving character of our God to us. And that was the biggest emphasis of it. But at the second coming of Jesus, the righteous judgment of God will be the big emphasis. And this is what will be revealed to us. And this is, this is likened to I don't know if you watch the, the Weather Channel, but this is likened to those tornadoes that were coming back through Arkansas, working their way to us a, a few weeks back. Because if you were watching the Weather Channel, you could look in on the radar and you could anticipate the path of wrath that, that this thing was coming down, where it was headed to. And so all Paul is doing and all I am doing this morning is serving as the National Weather Service to you. As, and I'm saying, hey, you need to look at this radar and, and I'm advising that you that you better pay attention or you're gonna get blown away. Church, let us not fall into the trap that the moralists did, presuming on God's grace without any conversion and life change behind it, falsely assuming that God's just gonna look at our sin and look the other way because time is running short and soon it will be too late for you to repent. See, because from the very beginning, opening of the Bible to the very end, the Bible, it calls sinners to to repent while there is still time left on the shot clock. And it's God in his kindness and in his patience that makes you and I aware of our sin. And and then he draws us in and then it becomes our responsibility to respond to him in repentance and gratitude because look, somebody's got to pay this tab. Now, now what I didn't mention earlier in explaining our sin in, in our relationship to God's wrath at least is that I didn't tell you that Paul was using a banking metaphor when he was talking about you're storing up for yourself God's wrath on the, on the day of judgment when God's wrath will be executed over you. So Paul's using a, a banking metaphor there. And, and what Paul's saying is that your life is like making a series of constant deposits that you're slowly building up for yourself, just like a bank account does. And so, uh, Pastor John, if you would uh, bring, bring us up here, uh, our, uh, the banks are... Our testimony, these are our testimony tanks this morning. We'll just, we'll set them right here. 
And, and the picture of this is that every person on the planet has, has both of these. So this is, we, we all have a good works bank and we all have a bank of wrath or a testimony tank. And so um, what's happening is that your life, you are constantly making deposits into both of these all the time. And everything that you say, the, the, in word, in deed, in thought. And so what's gonna happen is that your words and deeds and thoughts, they're either gonna excuse you one day or they're gonna accuse you. And so whenever, whenever it comes to these two testimony tanks, um, th- this one represents your your sin, your unrighteousness, your self-righteousness against God. Whenever you sin, you make a deposit there. And, and, and this one, the, the good works bank, whenever you, whenever you do good works on, 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 on the behalf of the kingdom, it gets deposited into this account. And I'm not really gonna talk much about this, about this one much. Um, Pastor John's actually gonna talk about this one um, next week. And, and so all I wanna say about this account is that uh, the good works testimony tank, this tank... Um, this tank doesn't mean diddly squat. That's the Greek word. It doesn't mean diddly squat if, if Christ doesn't make the deposit first of his good work into your account, okay? But once he does, once he, once he makes the deposit of his good work into your account, then this bank's a real big deal. Real big deal. On everything that you do. And Pastor John, he's gonna talk about that next week. So we'll just, we'll just leave that up here. But, but anyway, let me show you how this plays out. So, um, Pastor Cody, a few weeks back, he said that he said it's it's almost as if you have a, you have a, a, an invisible recorder that's hanging around your neck, testifying for you or or again. Do you have any money this morning? Okay, uh, good. Um, and, and so you, you have this recorder that's around your neck and it's testifying for or against you on everything that, that you do. And we're all constantly making deposits in every single thing that we say and every single thing that we do. So Pastor John, let's see what this, let's see what this, uh, this testimony tank has to say against. You went to church four Sundays in a row. Please make a deposit. Okay, all right, make a deposit in, in, in the bank. Awesome, what else does it have to say? You love the least of these Tuesday night. Please make a deposit. Awesome, 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 make a deposit. What else we got here? You were greedy when you had a chance to be generous. Please make a deposit. Oh, greedy when we had a chance to be generous. Make a deposit. And then last one. In your heart, you murdered the salesman at your door Friday. Please make a deposit. (laughs) Murdered the salesman at your door Friday in your heart. John, 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 John. Uh, So what I'm getting at is that you are always constantly making deposits that are testifying to, for, and against you. If you want to hear more about this one, um, and it's a really big deal, and it should matter a lot to believers, come back next week. Pastor John, you can take that with you. Let's give it up for Pastor John this morning. So let me, let me lastly here tell you um, what happens with this testimony tank of wrath that's been, that's been set against you. Every day when you and I, whenever we sin without repenting, we are depositing into our account the, the future wrath of God's judgment against us. And our thoughts, like I said, they were, will either accuse us or they will excuse us on the day of wrath when, when God's judgment comes and is revealed against us. And so on that day, God has appointed Jesus according to the gospel uh, as the judge, because essential to the gospel is the announcement that, that Christ has been appointed the perfect judge over this planet. So he's the one that gets to call the balls and the strikes on this. And, and then the scripture tells us that everyone is going to be judged by Christ on the je- day of judgment, that the father has delegated this to his son, Jesus. And Jesus told his own generation, in fact, he said, hey, the stuff that you do in the dark, it's going to be brought to the light. And on that day, all skeletons in every closet will be revealed. And that's why you and I, that's why we need a a cover up so much. Because the last thing you and I want to do is stand before God the Father on the day of judgment, like Adam and Eve after they sinned, naked, ashamed, and uncovered. That's why we need this divine cover up of the blood of the Lamb. And, and, and I think sometimes though, when we talk about this, you and I, we have this proclivity, okay, to, to believe that come the day of judgment, you know, we're either in or we're out. We're either innocent or we're, we're guilty, which is true to a degree. But earthly speaking, whenever someone commits nine murders, 
they go on trial for nine murders, not just one. And so at judgment, the perfect judge, he will render and consider everything that this testimony tank has to say against you, every sin that you've committed in your head, in your heart, and in your hands. And each one is going to be exposed to God's perfect judgment. Now, some people, when, when we talk about this, they go, well, well, if I'm just going to go to hell, I mean, I'm just going to go to hell. Why does it matter if I keep on sinning or, or, or not? And I read this uh, professor who put it like this. I thought this was really profound. I wanted to share it with you. He said this, the sinner in hell would give everything he owned and would do anything he could do to make one less the number of his sins during his lifetime because he will be judged according to his deeds. There are various degrees of punishment in hell because hell is where God manifests his perfect judgment and the punishment always fits the crime. If someone commits 30 sins, he's gonna be punished eternally in 30 different ways. And so don't, don't mishear me, okay? Like no doubt. No doubt, the justification of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through works, should any man boast. But we will be judged by our works. Romans 12, Jesus says, he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so as long as our hearts as long as they remain hardened and impenitent moment by moment by moment, there, there's not a person on this planet that's gonna be able to stand before the judgment seat of God and complain and use the, the, uh, the children's playground language of, hey, that's not fair. Because the scripture tells us that at a bare minimum, uh, your conscience and creation to both testify against you and that every person at some point will be held accountable no one is getting away from anything, but instead we are storing up everything. And so I need you to hear me on this. Somebody's gotta pay this tab. Somebody's gotta pay it. And so none of us here, we're gonna, none of us here are gonna stand before a mirror and give an account to ourselves about ourselves. No, no, no. You are gonna stand before God to give an account and one of two things is gonna happen. You will either belong to Jesus and enter into blessing because he's paid the tab on your behalf or you will not belong to Jesus and you will enter into eternal cursing and pay your tab forever in eternity in hell. Those are the only two options on the table because somebody has to pay the tab. Now for you who follow Jesus, the fact that Jesus paid this tab for you, this is some, this is some really good news. And, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to listen to this. This is Colossians uh, chapter one, verses 11 and 14. This is a receipt of God's payment for you. It's like one of those Walgreens receipts, you know, of everything that he's done. Listen to this, it says, being strengthened with all power according to this glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and, and transferred us into his kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. What a kind and forbearing and patient God that we serve. 